Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, tax the unvaxxed. It's a question also of fairness for uh, the 90% of the population who made some sacrifices. Quebec moves to impose a significant health tax on the unvaccinated. How will it work? Is it legal? Does it undermine Canada's public health system? In his first interview on the subject, we'll speak with the parliamentary assistant to the Premier, Christopher Skeet. Then we'll get reaction from the former Quebec Premier, Jean Charest. Then, truck pile up. Even if it's 10%, um, it's really gonna, gonna affect the supply chain between Canada and the United States. Will a new vaccine mandate on cross-border truckers that came into effect yesterday lead to a sudden spike in consumer prices? Does the government have a plan to deal with shortages? We'll speak with the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic LeBlanc, about that and about a healthcare system already overloaded. Plus, Red Scare. That is a real danger because we see a continued military buildup, tens of thousands of troops, heavy armor uh, in and around Ukraine. With 100,000 Russian troops massing on the Ukraine border, how does NATO deal with the Russian threat of invasion? Should Canada be shipping weapons to Ukraine? We'll speak with the former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Tom Lawson, the former National Security Advisor to two Prime Ministers, Dick Fadden, and the former Defence Minister, Peter McKay. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. So the battle against Omicron has a new opponent, the unvaxxed. Frustrated by restrictions, closures and curfews, Quebec has officially turned its political sights on the 10% of the population who remain unvaccinated, but who take up a disproportionate number of beds in ICUs and hospitals. Now, in a Canadian first, Quebec is preparing to slap a significant tax on the unvaxxed. They call it a health care contribution. They put a very important burden on our healthcare uh, network. And I think it's normal that the majority of the population is asking that there be a consequence. There are no details yet on how much it will be or how it will be collected, but the Quebec government promises legislation will be tabled next month. Just the threat of this tax has apparently boosted vaccine levels in the province, so some argue it's already working. But the pushback is also intense. The Canadian Civil Liberties Association has called it, quote, deeply troubling. And the debate over its legality remains, well, hypothetical until people see the details. But when asked about the tax, the Prime Minister of Canada did not criticize Quebec's approach. Check this out. As we've said, um, incentives and strong measures, whether it's vaccine uh, passports, whether it's uh, requirements for travelers, whether it's uh, the requirements for public servants to be fully vaccinated. We have taken very strong measures in the past and they have worked. So does this health contribution, this tax on the unvaxxed, threaten Canada's universal public health care system? Is the government confident it doesn't conflict with the Charter of Rights? How will it work? Well, let's find out. Joining me now is MNA and Parliamentary Assistant to the Premier of Quebec, Christopher Skeet. Mr. Skeet, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Um, give always us a, a pleasure to be here. Give us a sense. Uh, look, you, you've seen the debate about this tax on the unvaxxed. Uh, how is the Quebec government justifying it? Well, you know, one of the things that we're noticing, and, and the data is very clear, you're 13 times more likely to be uh, in intensive care if you're not vaccinated. Right now, currently, today, 33% of the hospitalizations are from the 10% that represent the unvaccinated. 
0.50% of those occupying intensive care beds come from those 10% who are not vaccinated. At some point, we need to have a conversation about why these people aren't getting vaccinated. And I think it's important that we take a look at that together. And this is one of the reasons why we're proposing uh, this avenue. This is a new avenue to use the universal single-payer public health system to essentially target one group. And the Civil Liberties Association is calling it deeply troubling. You've seen the conservative leader uh, in Ottawa, Aaron O'Toole, says it's unfair. Uh, how do you justify it when the the universal public health care system is supposed to be accessible to everybody? Well, I, I've been on this show a few times now, Evan, and one of the things that I always try to bring to the table when we are talking is how we always try to balance. And I think it's very important for, for Western democracies to have these conversations right now. How do we balance individual rights and collective rights? And I think we're right on that, on that line of how we balance the two. I deeply respect uh, people's rights to, to not want to get vaccinated. I, I, I do understand that, but there is a cost uh, to our society. And not just a financial cost, there's a societal cost to that decision. And I think at some point we have to have a discussion about that. How do we balance the individual rights and the collective rights? Now, what we're proposing is to table a legislation and we're going to have a debate about it in our in our institution, in our democratic institution, to have that conversation to see how best to balance right. those two rights. I, I know the details haven't been worked out, Christopher Skeet, and I understand that there's going to be debate. But we don't know how much, how it's going to be enforced. But what maybe we can find out what's being ruled out. For example, will people be asked to pay when they show up at a hospital needing care? One of the things the premier said is that this bill is not about making being punitive. This isn't this isn't a revenge bill. This this bill here that we're going to be proposing and we're going to be discussing with the opposition to make sure it's the fairest possible bill is something that's not aimed at those who can't get vaccinated with a with a good reason, right? If you have a a healthcare condition that prevents you from getting vaccinated, this this bill is not going to target you. This is to make sure that people realize the, the onerousness of, of the decision that they're making not to get vaccinated. Okay, so there's a legal question. Is it constitutional? If someone has a religious exemption, do they, do they cite the charter on that? I know, I was looking through the Quebec Public Health Act, and actually, it's pretty robust. In the Quebec Public Health Act, you can, the minister can actually drop a list of infectious diseases, and someone, I'm going to read it, a person is, quote, obligated to submit to medical treatments required to prevent contagion. That's literally in the Quebec Health Act. Your, your government has the right to force people to take a vaccine. Is that even on the table? Well, when you look at that legislation, you understand the awesome importance it is to have that consideration for collective rights. We all have a responsibility to one another. But at the same time, I don't think we, I don't think we live in a society where we want that to happen, where people are dragged and forcibly injected. Right. But at the same token, we also have to balance the right of those people to have integrity over their their own bodies. And you're right. The current laws go very far. Is that applicable? These are the types of things that we want to have discussions about with our with our impending bill. Look, the premier said that the punishment, the tax, the fee is going to be, quote, significant. Now, we don't know the numbers. People are worried that this is going to punish the poor, punish the marginalized uh, and Look, Austria is doing this. They're talking about $5,000 every three months as a punishment. What is a significant fee here? Is it the Austrian model, five grand tax every three months? Well, the premier already said it's going to be significant. Again, 
We're going to wait to see what that looks like when we're speaking with the opposition. But I think what's more important is getting a sense of where it is we're trying to go with this. We're trying to show people that there is a cost to their decision. Right. And I think that's important. And the premier was also quite clear quite clear to say that this in no way will target the most vulnerable in our society. If you suffer from a disease that prevents you from getting a vaccine, of course, this is out of scope for you. If you're if you're homeless or if you have mental illness uh, that prevents you from making an informed decision, of course, we're not targeting the weak here. Look, there's there's clearly concerns about the tyranny of the majority here. But but let's talk about the slippery slope argument. Oh, OK, so today. It's January 2022. We're in a crisis. You target the unvaxxed to pay for it. But then the healthcare system is already in crisis. There's shortages all the time. Remember in Quebec, uh, years ago, they tried a $25 per visit fee on doctors. That was rejected. What's to stop your government saying, okay, well, hospital system's still broken. Let's target smokers. Data shows they take up a disproportionate number of uh, beds and people who don't eat properly and addicts and drinkers. And all of a sudden, you're targeting all sorts of people that are, quote, overrepresented in the healthcare system. That's the slippery slope. How will you avoid it? Well, I would say in the case of smokers as a society, we've already decided that we tax smokers before, right? When they're purchasing no, you their, t- no, their cigarettes. No, let's be clear. That's an un- no, but, but you know, that's your tax. The sin tax taxes the good, not the person. The, the head tax is different. You're taxing the person here, not the thing. That's a, the sin tax is a different thing, and you know that. Well, what I'm saying is that we've already experimented with these types of discussions in the past. And where, where we landed in, in, the, in the terms of cigarettes was to say, yeah, when you're buying it, that's the time to get it. But at the same time, we also have a responsibility to one another. And I think this is where we make a decision collectively. What we're proposing here is we don't want to deny service to anybody. These people, even though they're not vaccinated, have a right to have access to their health care system. Uh, you've got people who polls are showing or are sick of the restrictions and the curfews. You had to replace your health director who had said, you know, people are no longer really trusting the erosion of trust and the credibility. Uh, people are maybe fed up with the approach. Was this a way to distract from that and target the unvaccinated, a political distraction? Well, I would I would push back on the fact that most people don't support what we're doing. A lot of people understand the notion that in order for us to reduce propagation, we have to reduce our contacts. No one's happy about it. I'm, I'm not happy that I wasn't able to see my family at Christmas or that I wasn't able to travel. But people understand that that's something that we have to do collectively. Again, to be there for one another. What we're seeing though is people are fed up and I get it, you know, people are tired of of these restrictions and they want them to end. And, you know, the premier himself wants it to end and I want it to end. But I think what we have to do is, you know, be responsible and being responsible means taking tough decisions. Last question, is it possible that this is an emergency measure and that it will have a sunset clause? We've seen in other emergencies. This is an an extreme thing to do, a healthcare tax, a tax on vax, but when this, is passed, this gets removed. Will this have a sunset clause? What we have in terms of um, the, the way that we've been managing the crisis is we have uh, decrees that are that are enacted uh, every month and then they're renewed given the current pandemic state. Eventually, these renewals will end because they're temporary measures. So the, the, the powers that the government has in terms of decrees are not there that are permanent. They're not laws that are being voted right. in that are permanent unless you take them off. They're things that need to be renewed, and if they're not, they automatically expire. That's how we've chosen to govern in order to make sure that we safeguard people's rights. So, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not at all concerned that in the future rights will be eroded after we've passed this pandemic. All right, I got to leave it there uh, this morning. Of course, curfew lifts tomorrow. Kids back at school in Quebec tomorrow. m and Christopher Skeet, always appreciate you joining us. Thank you, sir. I'm happy to be here, Evan. Thanks a lot. All right, when we come back, a cluster truck.
Will a vaccine mandate for truckers impact inflation? What is the federal government's position on Quebec's tax on the unvaccinated? Well, we'll get all that from the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister, Dominic LeBlanc. He joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. So with COVID overwhelming healthcare systems all over the country, the premiers met again with the prime minister and asked for one key thing, more money for healthcare systems. Okay, it's a provincial song as old as time itself, but the truth is healthcare systems in this country were overwhelmed long before the pandemic hit. Check this out. Canada ranks second last in the G7 for hospital beds per capita with two and a half beds per thousand. So is it time for a big fix and just as urgently will the new vaccine mandate for cross-border Canadian truckers that came into effect yesterday cause a massive supply chain shortage for consumers to talk about that and lots more we are now joined by the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs Dominic LeBlanc. Minister great to have you uh, back on the program yesterday your government slapped this uh, new vaccine mandate on all Canadian truckers who are going across the border. They need now to be fully vaccinated. You know the concern about this. The Truckers Association has said this is going to pull 16,000 truckers, Canadian truckers off the road. Uh, and this is going to lead to supply chain disruptions and uh, higher prices. What is the plan to mitigate that? So, Evan, this, this is not a surprise for the trucking industry. We had indicated that this would be the posture in the middle of January. We'd indicated that at the end of November, uh, sort of two and a half months ago. So they, they have known this is the case. The Americans are imposing next week a similar mandate. Uh, Evan, it's, it, what's disrupting supply chains and what's endangering supply chains is COVID, is the pandemic. And the best way out of the pandemic uh, is vaccination. So whether it's federally regulated workplaces where we've mandated uh, vaccine uh, uh, vaccine requirements or whether it's travel on an airplane, this shouldn't surprise anybody. Right. This every doctor and public health, uh, public health expert will confirm is the best way to get COVID behind us. And that's the best way to right. return security and stability to Canada's supply chain. I understand that, but the reality is, I, I get it. And believe me, I appreciate the balance between pandemic and prices, but you still will have thousands and thousands of trucks off the road. You've still got people who are experiencing inflation at the grocery store. And, and I guess the question that your government might be asked is, look, given the reality, um, why impose it now? Why not keep these truckers as essential workers and give them an exemption until you can smooth this thing out? Evan, as I said, everybody's had adequate notice that this policy was coming into, uh, into uh, effect. A similar policy is coming into effect in the United States. What will remove some of the inflationary pressures on supply chains? What will ensure that we have adequate and reliable supply at Canadian grocery stores is to bring an end to the pandemic, is to put COVID behind us. So the more people we can encourage to get vaccinated, to protect themselves, their families and their communities, and the Canadian economy, the faster we can get COVID behind us. Okay, so you got that situation that's unfolding. And I appreciate you're saying that the government needs to encourage um, people to get vaccinated. The health minister, Duclos, had floated the idea that provinces have to start talking about mandatory vac vaccinations. And then Quebec has this idea 
that they're going to have an anti-vax tax, tax the unvaccinated. Uh, they call it a health care contribution. What's the federal government's position on the idea of that? Could that violate the Canada Health Act? Do you support this idea? Well, we've taken note of a proposal that the Quebec government uh, made public last week. Uh, different provinces at different times, Evan, have put into place measures to encourage vaccine uptake. Uh, you'll remember when the vaccines first became available last spring and in great quantities last summer, some provinces had raffles uh, for a lifetime hunting license to encourage people to get vaccinated. So across the country, different provincial governments within their own jurisdiction have been doing what they think is the best way to encourage their populations, their citizens, to get vaccinated. Our job as a national government is to ensure that we have an adequate supply of vaccines so that every eligible Canadian can receive one. You can still have a position on this. Aaron O'Toole said he doesn't uh, like this idea. This is, this is, is it an incentive or is it punitive to, to target the unvaccinated and say, you've got to pay a price for this on our health care system? Um, is the federal government supportive of using the health care system to punish certain groups to change their behavior? Evan, we don't know the details of this particular Quebec proposal. What we're supportive of is to use every avail available mechanism to encourage Canadians to get vaccinated, to do the right thing. In our own jurisdiction, Evan, whether it's federally regulated industries, banks, telecommunications companies, airlines, we've imposed vaccine mandates in the federal public service. So provinces are looking within their own jurisdiction at what they think is the best way to encourage vaccine uptake. Uh, and we'll continue to do right. what we can to ensure that provinces have an adequate supply of all of these vaccines and things like rapid tests and obviously new therapeutic drugs should they become available. You were on the call with the Prime Minister and the Premiers as you always are, and the Premiers always say, we need more money for health care. The truth is, yes, COVID has put gasoline on the fire, but the stats I quoted from the OECD, we are among the worst in the G20 and the G7 in terms of hospital beds per capita, two and a half beds per thousand. At what point does the federal government listen to the provinces and say, look, the system was overwhelmed before COVID? Did, your, did the prime minister or did you say, look, we are going to fix an already broken system and increase the transfer? We've said, Evan, for many months, a first minister's meeting the prime minister had a year ago, that we were prepared to increase the federal transfer for health care to provinces and territories. We're also in the middle of a very, very serious global pandemic. The government of Canada has stepped up in a massive way to support provinces, the health care system, $65 billion alone during the pandemic to support health care delivery in the provinces. And what we've said, and the Prime Minister has had a number of conversations, for example, with Premier Horgan, who chairs the Council of the Federation, the group of premiers. We talked about it again uh, last Monday evening. The Government of Canada will absolutely be there to increase support for public health care in Canada. But we've also said, Evan, that we want the appropriate data, we want the appropriate transparency as to how that money will improve outcomes right. for Canadians. Okay, got to leave it there. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning, Minister LeBon. Thanks, Evan. Have a great day. All right, coming up, the brink of war. Russia has 100,000 troops on the border of Ukraine, and talks between Russia and NATO are failing. What is Canada's role? Should Canada provide weapons 
to Ukraine. We'll put those questions to the former chief of the defense staff, Tom Lawson, the former director of CSIS, Dick Fadden, and the former defense minister, Peter McKay. Stay right here with Question Period. Will there be a war in Europe? It's not an overstatement. It's what the NATO Secretary General has warned this week following a diplomatic stalemate between Russia and NATO allies over the future of Ukraine. As Russia keeps over 100,000 troops on the border there doing live fire exercises, talks between the West and Russia continually fail. And there are now new and even more unsettling warning signs that the situation is worsening. Just days ago, the Ukraine government was hit by a cyber attack. The message on government computer screens, be afraid and expect the worst. Of course, Russia's already invaded an annexed part of Ukraine back in 2014 when they took the Crimean Peninsula. Now they're demanding that Ukraine never be part of NATO, as if NATO membership is up to the Russians. So what now? From a Canadian point of view, Canada has 200 personnel in Ukraine under Operation Unifier. It's a training mission. The Prime Minister spoke to the Ukrainian president last week about extending that mission. But should Canada do more, ship weapons to help Ukraine defend itself? Let's find out. Joining me now. Peter McKay, the former Defense and Foreign, Foreign Affairs Minister under Stephen Harper. He now works as a Strategic Advisor for Deloitte Canada. Also, Dick Fadden, the former CSIS Director, the former Deputy Minister for National Defense, and the former National Security Advisor to both Stephen Harper and Justin Trudeau. And we've got the retired General Tom Lawson, the former Chief of the Defense Staff, the highest-ranking military member in Canada. Gentlemen, first of all, great to see you all, and you know each other well. Um, I'm going to start with you, Peter McKay, from the perspective of the Canadian government and our NATO allies, uh, should Canada be doing more than just sanctions, which they're talking about? Well, we are doing more than sanctions. Going back to 2014, as you mentioned off the top, Evan, we've got troops there, albeit to train, about 120 plus staff. And uh, we have previously given uh, defensive support. So road clearance, uh, winter protection, um, communications, we, we've done everything but send actual military uh, procured weaponry, which I think is something Ukraine is looking for. Should we be doing more? I'd say the first thing Minister Anand, with her mandate letter in hand, should go to Cabinet and say, we are going to renew and continue for the foreseeable future to support Mission Unifier. Get that done. Then leaning forward, I would suggest that there is more that can be done diplomatically. Canada has been a bit absent from the discussion. President Biden has been making the rounds and calling countries looking for their support. We haven't been part of those discussions. And I would suggest that the, the thing that Russia fears the most that Putin doesn't want to see is not a inclusion in NATO, but it's a resilient, independent, sovereign, corruption-free Ukraine. Uh, Dick, you're the former national security advisor. Um, People are trying to figure out what does what does Vladimir Putin really like want? What's his goal here? Is it to invade? And so, what advice, if you were national security advisor, would you be giving the prime minister? First, I would say that his objective is control, but not sovereign control. And I think that harks back to the days when the Soviet Union controlled without owning a bunch of countries in Eastern Europe. I don't think he wants to invade Ukraine and take it over. I agree with Peter. There are a bunch of things that we can do there, but we cannot do anything that's going to be very effective alone. So I entirely agree with Peter. We should be out there beating the bushes with our allies, arguing 
maybe send some more troops on a rotational basis, uh, make sure that sanctions that are now in place are fully respected. Uh, General Lawson, weigh in on that, where, where you think this is going. And actually, if Canada even has the capacity now to start increasing its presence. Yeah, I, I'll add to what Peter McKay said. Actually, we've had up to a thousand Canadians also in Eastern European countries as right. uh, part of Operation Assurance, which has been the, the largest ongoing Canadian operation since it went in uh, under my orders back in 2015 under the Conservative government and has been uh, repeated all the way up. We've got a, a battle group in Latvia leading uh, part of uh, uh, NATO's um, confidence maneuvers to let the Eastern European uh, members of NATO know that they're there uh, and standing up uh, against whatever the Russians might do. Uh, but I, I would agree as well with Dick. I don't think uh, Putin is seeking an invasion, even a mini invasion. Sending uh, soldiers in Russian uniforms across uh, the Ukraine border uh, really changes the dynamics in a way I don't think he's looking for. Uh, I think what he's doing is in, in a nation that I think we should respect as a, uh, a fading uh, power, uh, you know, it, we really should be focused on China and, and other nations uh, growing and becoming powerhouses that Russia's are receding, and I think Putin knows that. Yeah, but of course that could make him uh, more dangerous if uh, a fading power needs to be reactive. Uh, there is one stick that's been out there. Should NATO say, look, let's agree to keep Ukraine neutral? Maybe that's it. Uh, they don't join NATO. Is that, should that be on the table, Peter McKay? I don't think there is any likelihood that Ukraine is going to join NATO in the foreseeable future. They've been asking for membership action for a long time. Obviously, they, they are looking for more weaponry from Western countries, but also sanctions. I think there is a, a bigger role for Canada to play in the world of diplomacy, and that is calling out Vladimir Putin for this premise that somehow NATO is threatening them, whether it's uh, on, on the former Soviet Union borders or whether it's pushing back that, that NATO has done in the past through training missions in places like Ukraine, but also uh, in, in other neighboring countries. And so we need to sort of expose that for the lie that it is, and at the same time get into some kind of a serious negotiation to de-escalate. Yeah, D Dick, weigh in on that. Go well, for you know, it. Evan, well, I was going to say, uh, both the point that Peter just made and the one that Tom made earlier, I think points to the need for Canada to have a foreign policy or a national security policy. I, I slightly disagree with Tom in the sense that we have to focus almost exclusively on China. I argued on your program some years ago that we should not ignore uh, Putin and Russia because it has the potential for causing a great deal of problems in Europe. I mean, the Baltic states and Poland and others are scared witless, if you'll forgive my use of the word, about what they could possibly do. China is a long ways away by comparison. We need a foreign policy that's holistic and comprehensive so that we can allocate the military, diplomatic, and economic tools that Peter's talking about. Tom, Tom Lawson, last thing to you, General Lawson, um, and it's military capacity. Um, you know, you talk about China, you talk, do, right now we've got some capacity crisis within the military itself, just in terms of the, the, the men and women and the tools. Uh, does that limit Canada's ability to respond, to provide weapons to Ukraine, in your view? Well, um, I, I don't know about providing uh, weapons to the Ukraine. Uh, that's that's going to be a NATO decision and one that 
brings the uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet in. But um, as for Canada's military uh, capabilities, I mean, we are kind of the seventh most powerful, influential uh, nation in NATO. And we've got a history of responding when NATO asks, and this has NATO's attention. So uh, there are all kinds of things that Canada can do, positioning troops uh, closer to the border uh, in in Ukraine. And Canada has the third largest uh, collection of people with Ukrainian background in the world. Number one, Ukraine, number two, Russia, and then number three, Canada, million and a half Canadians. So this is very, uh, very key for uh, a key Canadian issue and a key NATO issue and a very important issue for the world. Retired General Lawson, Dick Fadden, and uh, Peter McKay. Gents, I really appreciate you. It's an evolving situation with lots of implications, but thanks for giving us some perspective this morning. Appreciate it. All right, still to come, taxing the unvaxxed. Will Quebec's hardline approach toward the unvaccinated actually work, or is it a slippery slope towards targeting other groups? Former Quebec Premier Jean Charest joins us as a special guest in the Scrum. Stay right here with Question Period. The problem with the unvaxxed. Every province is facing the same issue. A disproportionate number of hospital and ICU beds taken up by the unvaccinated, and that's leading to delays in surgeries for many citizens. But only Quebec has proposed the controversial idea of taxing the unvaxxed. Will any other province follow? So far, there's no sign of that. Check this out. Saskatchewan hasn't looked at this. Uh, we have no intent uh, to ultimately look at uh, a vax tax. We've never taken that approach. We're going to take a different approach. I think the idea of starting to impose uh, specified or variated taxes or charges based on people's health, their, their personal choices or their health condition is a violation of that uh, higher Canadian principle of universal access. In fact, and Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole has rejected the idea, but the Prime Minister, well, he said he's waiting to see the details. So could the tax on the unvaxxed set a precedent? What questions does it raise? Will it have support for a province that is fed up with restrictions and lockdowns? The Scrum is here to look into this. Uh, Joyce Napier, our CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief, is here. So is Marika Walsh, political reporter with The Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is the former Quebec Premier, Jean Charest, good morning to everyone. Okay, Mr. Charest, what is your view on the politics of the tax on the unvaxxed and, and, and how this could play out? Well, you describe it very well. People in this province are very, very frustrated with the unvaxxed because there is, in their minds, a very direct link between the fact that they are occupying hospital beds and they are emergency units when, in fact, there are people who are being deprived of health services and life-depending services because of their decision. And so that's the reason why there's wide support. A tax is, is a bit of an unusual way to do it because uh, it's very uncertain how you implement that, and the design would be, I think, pretty perilous. But whether it's a tax or whether it's something else, Evan, uh, people in this province want the government to press upon the unvaccinated to assume their responsibilities as citizens and get themselves vaccinated. Marika, so many details, right? We don't know how it's going to be enforced, <laughs> how it's going to play out. And I get it, they've got to legislate it, but it's certainly sparked a debate across the country. What questions does this raise? 
Well, I think that Mr. Charest laid out some of them. I think we know this is a popular policy. We don't know the effect of this policy. Will it actually get people to get vaccinated? That should be the goal of any policy. And we know that things like misinformation are still key drivers of the group of people who are not yet willing to get vaccinated. We saw clips on national TV last week, people saying they were scared of the vaccine. There is clearly some lack of information, people getting information from wrong sources that leads them to be scared of this vaccine. And so while the government might be targeting them and raising in, you know, a stick rather than a carrot, they might also want to address the other elements that lead to vaccine hesitancy to actually ensure that they go and get the shots in their arms. Joyce, look, we all know it's an emergency. There's no question. And, and people are furious and the health systems are overloaded. We, we get that. But people are saying this could set a precedent here, the slippery slope. Oh, today it's the unvaxxed. Tomorrow it's people who don't eat properly. Uh, how does, what questions remain for you? Is this, is this a slippery slope situation? I don't know if it's a slippery slope situation because it's an extraordinary situation and we know it. Uh, things have occurred, uh, lockdowns, that's an extraordinary situation. Would you have ever imagined that we would be locked down two and a half years ago? So we're in a situation that is extraordinary. There's, <clears throat> I think it's two-pronged. Is it a nice thing to do? No. Uh, is it an effective thing to, thing to do? Actually, yes. It's a one-two punch from François Legault. It's actually quite Machiavellian. And, you know, almost politically, uh, I could see why he would do a thing like that. First of all, he is shifting that anger that politicians are starting to feel. And, you know, they're feeling very uncomfortable about people's frustration and anger because they have made incredibly big mistakes over the last year. So shift it to the people who really are responsible for the lineups Jean Charest is talking about. But Mr. Shrey, you've been in the office. Uh, look, the state has coercive power always to, to, to change people's behaviors. The question is, should they do that at the expense of a minority? I, I remember when you were a premier, you proposed, then you had to back off that $25 user fee per doctor visit because it was a medical system that was, uh, you know, broke, basically. So does that answer this question? Could this be legal? Using the tax system is actually a, a pass that uh, could very well work. There already is a special health tax in Quebec, and it could just be a matter of increasing it. The difficulty, Evan, will come with, uh, with the people that you're targeting. First of all, there are a lot of those people who just don't pay taxes to start with. Some of them are, are not people who are in, in good physical or mental form. And some of them, uh, you know, are just hardcore people who keep giving us these responses and to whom we are saying enough. We've heard your arguments about enough. There is a direct link between what you are not doing and people not getting cared for. Do as every responsible citizen should do. So the design of it, you know, it may vary. We may get a surprise. They may decide in the end that it's too complicated to implement, but certainly the effect of what they're doing and the sentiment that they're reflecting is that of a major, a, a big majority of the population right now in Quebec and I, I, I'm guessing elsewhere in Canada. Let, let's go to the politics federally, Marika. Uh, obviously, Aaron O'Toole said, I don't like it. Uh, Justin Trudeau, maybe it was more interesting what he didn't say. He didn't condemn it. He said, I got to wait and see the details. How does this cut politically on a federal level? You know, Quebec is always 
kind of an interesting beast for this government to deal with because of how much they rely on it for their path to victory every time in government. And it is an outlier, right? Other provinces immediately said, no, we won't do this. So the federal government is doing this juggling. I think they are buying themselves time while they say they're waiting for details to figure out what they will say. I think they're seeing the same polls as Joyce and Mr. Sharia are seeing that show this is popular. And so they're going to wait and see a bit and buy some time before they have to really weigh in on it. Interesting, the, the Bloc Québécois said they wouldn't comment at all citing provincial jurisdiction, which is, of course, not something we've heard them say consistently when they decide to weigh in on some provincial matters. So clearly it's a hot button issue and a sensitive issue for the federal government and for federal parties. Right. Uh, by the way, uh, if it did ever, we don't know the form yet, but if it violates the Canada Health Act, the best the Canadian government can do, actually, is just withhold federal transfer That's money. Right. Uh, all which, right. they, which they'll never do. You want my, my yeah. view on yeah. it, and I've been exactly. there. And in the days when I was Premier of Quebec, there were things that we were doing that in certain instances uh, may have been out, outside of the act. Federal government won't move on this. They have, they'll let it pass. Okay, got to leave it there. Um, Thank you, Jean Charest. Great to have you uh, joining you. us with your perspective on this. Uh, Joyce and Marika are going to stick around because when we come back, a truck up after grinding its gears with a series of baffling reversals, the federal government doubles down on its policy to require all cross-border Canadian truck drivers to be vaccinated. Will this protect Canadians or cause a sudden spike in prices and supply chain issues? The Canadian Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Perrin Beattie joins us next. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, it's a head-on collision between the pandemic and prices. As of yesterday, a new federal vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers is now in effect. Unvaccinated Canadian truckers coming into the country will face PCR testing and quarantine, basically stopping those trucks at the border. The Truckers Association has said this new vaccine mandate will take up to 16,000 truckers off the road and cause major supply chain shortages. That means higher prices for you, which is why they were so relieved earlier in the week when the Canadian Border Services Agency actually said, you know what, unvaccinated Canadian truckers will be exempt from the rule. Turns out, though, that was a mistake. Now, after that communication truck up, real questions remain. Will vaccine mandates further dent labor shortages and how do governments find the balance between public health concerns and the economy and prices. Well, the Scrum is back. Joyce Napier, CTV News Ottawa Bureau Chief is back. Marika Walsh, political reporter with The Globe is back. And our special guest this round is the Canadian Chamber of Commerce President and CEO, Perrin Beattie. Uh, okay, Perrin, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you. Look, it's a genuine conundrum, right? Uh, you gotta get people vaccinated. We've discussed that throughout the program. At the same time, you got the economy. What concerns do you have about the impact of this vaccine mandate? Everybody agrees that, that Truckers, like everybody else, should be vaccinated. But the question is, what's the best way to achieve this? Up until now, Evan, truckers have been considered an essential service. They were the unsung heroes during the first part of this pandemic because they brought us the food, the fuel, the medical supplies, everything that we needed. They kept the supply chains open. For some reason, right now, the government's decided to target them. And it's coming at the height of when, they're ab when there's absenteeism because of Omicron, when supply chains are under stress, when we're getting price increases across the economy and shortages. And when we just had a report that was released in the last two weeks 
looking at the shortages within the sector was funded in part by the federal government and it showed almost 23,000 drivers short before the government's actions this weekend. Okay, and, and Joyce, there's that. So where are the truckers gonna come from? And will this lead to higher prices? You had Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University who said nearly two thirds of the 21 billion agri-food imports into Canada from the US, guess what, arrive by trucks. We could see a spike in food prices. We can see a spike in absolutely everything. And look, this is math. And you know, the head of the Truckers Association said, uh, look, truckers are like, you know, in our population, 10% of them are not vaccinated. That is a total of about 15, 16,000 of them. And you include, you know, as Perrin just said, those who are calling in sick uh, legitimately, um, that's a lot of truckers. They are essential services. Uh, they, they, they didn't stop being essential. Uh, they worked throughout this pandemic. We kept getting all the stuff we needed throughout this pandemic. Okay, there were shortages. You know, maybe you didn't get your avocados or maybe you didn't get your, the, you know, your Boston lettuce, but you got your stuff thanks to these guys. So is there a way perhaps to accommodate them because you will feel not only in your pocketbooks, but when you go to the supermarket or for any kind of supply, because it's not only food, it's parts. Marika, it is a difficult one, right? Uh, wh what do you make as knowing that the U.S. on January 22nd are going to bring in similar rules? Uh, mm -hmm. How do you see this? Well, I think going off of what Joyce said, if the government has done those calculations about the impact on the economy, they certainly haven't shared it with the public. I know you last week spoke with Minister Ng about this on Power Play. I heard a lot of buzzwords, not necessarily a lot of clear answers around how these things would be addressed or avoided. And then to top it off, after 24 hours of confusion, the government didn't put up any ministers on Friday to address this head on, to explain to the public, to the industry, to Canadians who are watching this and having questions exactly what happened, why it happened, and how they're going to fix this so that the truckers who went back to the U.S. thinking that they would be allowed back in without a quarantine might now be stuck. So, Parambini, there's lots of questions now. People are sick of the restrictions, uh, but curfews are lifting. Schools are back. Um, no one's sure if we've reached peak Omicron or not and, and where this is going. Uh, and if new lockdowns or restrictions are going to come. So what, where are we now in terms of balancing economic needs, real, but also protection from Omicron, real? Well, I, I think the key point here is we have to look at how do, how do we live with this disease? It's not going away anytime soon. So how do we manage it with the least damage to our citizens and with the least damage to our economy? And one of the ways of doing that is to be data-driven and driven by science. What the government is doing is right at the peak pressures right now, it's saying we're going to sideline thousands of truckers who are providing an essential service. What they could have been doing is, if, if, if there was evidence showing that it was truckers crossing the border were the major cause of, of the spread of Omicron, they could target that and they could do that through an educational campaign at the border where they, where they meet truckers. They could also be working with the provinces to set up vaccination clinics, uh, for example, at truck stops across the country. But instead, for some reason, what they've chosen to do is, is to sideline thousands of people when they're needed most. Uh, okay, we should just say, and the Trucking Association continues to remind us, Marika, 90% of truckers are vaccinated. We should say that. 90% yeah. of them are vaccinated. But, but there's a great question, and I'll, I'll leave this last one to you, Marika, because you were questioning Dr. Teresa Tam about this recently. The data, 
how do we make decisions on are we coming to the end of this? Are we, you know, are we at the peak? Are we seeing more hospitalizations? Because without good data, it seems that politicians can't make good decisions. That's right, Evan. There is more and more, I think, a fog around the information because the testing system in Canada just right. buckled under Omicron. And that means that the public health agency is now estimating case counts and therefore extrapolating possible severity and hospitalizations and admissions. So PHAC has become, or the public health agency has become even more cautious in saying definitive things about the peak, when it's coming, whether it's already happened. In terms of the truckers, you know, maybe this is going to be a case where we're going to find out very quickly whether or not the federal government has again taken truckers for granted, whether these trucking associations and industries and companies can redirect the 10% who are not vaccinated to interprovincial travel, how complicated all of that is to rearrange people's schedules and routes. I don't have that information. Clearly they're saying it's a concern, but we're gonna see in the next week or two whether or not this is going to be a big mistake from the government or whether they're mm. able to work around it. I, always tough to uh, turn around an 18 wheel policy here. We'll find out if they can do it now. Uh, Marika Walsh, Perrin Beatty, uh, Joyce Napier, great to have the three of you on the program. And of course we want to pay tribute to the remarkable life and legacy of Alexa McDonough. She passed away yesterday at the age of 77. In an age of political cynicism, Miss McDonough was a person who entered politics for all the right reasons, and those reasons never wavered. A selfless champion of human rights and social justice, Ms. McDonough went from being dismissed as a long shot, that was often a euphemism for the chauvinism she faced, to becoming an iconic agent of change. She was the first woman to lead a major political party in Canada when she became the leader of the Nova Scotia NDP in 1980. And from there, never taking the easy path up the mountain, she became the leader of the federal NDP. She served from 1995 to 2003 and remained on as a member of parliament until 2008. Tributes, of course, are pouring in to a woman largely known as Alexa. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh saying she dedicated her life to social justice, championed women in politics, and never backed down from a challenge. The Prime Minister writing, the impact she had, history she made, and barriers she broke for women cannot be overstated. Ms. McDonough was diagnosed with Alzheimer's a number of years ago. She leaves behind her two sons and seven grandchildren. Alexa, thank you for your service to our country. Rest in peace. And that's Question Period for this week. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you back here in seven short days.